business. Morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Okay, good. That's, that makes fun of us. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm just staying busy these days. Actually, it's uh, it's kind of a weird feeling to talk about with most people because most people are uh, struggling to stay busy right now, and uh, our industry is still uh, kicking pretty hard. Good, great. <laughs> That's awesome. It's uh, it's weird though. Uh, you know, being out in the world working right now, it's uh, it's weird to see everything going on so firsthand. Right, every right. It's um, it's not very active out there, is it? No, actually, we uh, so we have a job going on over in Daytona right now, and so I spent uh, that day and a half, two days over there, um, for work, and then went back over with the wife just to kind of you know just go to the beach and walk on it for a few. And Daytona in April, I never thought I'd be able to drive down A1A and see about four cars. Wow. That was it. (laughs) I mean, it was, it was just, uh, it it was like a real moment. It was where I was sitting there driving. I'm like, oh my God, this is real. (laughs) Like, this is really real. (laughs) Like hotel parking lots completely empty, you know, just seeing things like that. It uh, really makes it sink in. Well, I hope we don't. We're not in this too much longer. I would hope so. Um, it's definitely uh, starting to take a strain on. I know a lot of uh, you know a lot of industries are really starting to take a heavy impact from it. And uh, one, you know, if we're referring to as an industry, I would uh, assume yours. You know, college sports is taking a very hard hit uh, from this. Sure is. It sure is. So. Um. They're talking, I read in the paper this morning that if football were to be canceled, Tuscaloosa, Alabama would be out $20 million. Holy crap. Yeah, so Gainesville would probably take a similar hit of about $20 million if you don't have, uh, if you don't have football. So, that's, uh, you know, we all got to keep hunkering down <laughs> so that we can get through this as fast as possible. Absolutely. Well, and, and a quick tidbit too there, and I wanted to touch on this later as well, but we'll go ahead and you know kind of touch on it a little bit. Is what's what's college? What are college sports, especially at that level? You know, SEC football. What's that going to look like even after this is you know cleared? Are people still going to flock? You know, eighty thousand, hundred thousand people no. deep into stadiums right away? No, Mm-mm. no, definitely not. Definitely I mean, not. I think we're going to see a massive shift in the willingness in people to, you know, sardine themselves after something like this. Yeah, no, I mean, the college kids will be there, you know, uh, cause they don't give a rat's patoot, but, uh, the older citizens are going to be, you know, they're really going to have to measure out whether they're going to go or not. And when they go, everybody's going to have to wear a mask. And well, everybody's going to need to get their, get their temperature taken. I mean, those are the things that are going to have to be in place, I think, before uh, they they do that. Well, and for me, the real question there is, do the college arenas, you know, University of Florida, UCF, do these colleges come out and say, okay, listen, we understand that people don't want to be in t- such tight spaces with each other. Let's go ahead and reduce the seating capacity of our venues 
and just make it more of an experience. So kind of like they did with the O'Connell Center, actually, you know, back about, what, two years ago, and they remodeled. They dropped the capacity by, I believe it was like 1,000 seats, and they made the seats much nicer. But I mean even to more, you know, more of an extreme. Do they essentially do away with just the stadium-style seating and go to more of these, like, you know, little section areas where it's just you and your friends, you know, together, you, you and your five. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I know that this morning or at the, uh, power five ADs all met or yesterday they all met and they all said there will be no college sports until campuses are open. So, wow. I know for you, I know for UF, the campuses are not going to be open all throughout the whole summer. They've already they've already determined that they're going to be distance learning uh, for all summer classes. So that takes you into August. Now, does that mean you can still have, you know, football practice, even though the campus isn't open? I don't know. So UF has already decided that campus is not going to be open until September 1. Wow. Oh, and that's yeah. that's going to have you know a huge effect in my opinion on you know strength and conditioning is going to be the biggest thing to, to take a be, massive loss here, and so my fear is that we go into college sports in the fall, and we see an increase in injuries because well, we haven't had these kids in the gym you know five yeah. six days a week you know making sure that their no needs doubt. are taken care of. Yeah, no, no doubt. But you're just kidding yourself if you think the health and welfare of the student athlete is in the forefront of the NCAA's mind. That's just, that's a pipe dream. That's never been the case. I do believe you have a very strong point. (laughs) (laughs) They, they, they do not care. You know, I mean, you know, they act like they care. They're trying to act like they care, but at the end of the day, they don't care. You know, and just a just a part of the business model. Well, just a small hometown thing that I think will kind of you know drive that point home for me is the Will Greer thing at uh, you know University of Florida football. It was like it was like a cold medicine that he took, and the NCAA made this massive deal about it. At the end of the day, like it was literally a cold medicine, and so yeah, just it's just minor things like that that do make you kind of step back and look at it and go. Do do they really? Is it really just about the health and wellness of the athletes, or is it is it just a money well, maker? You know, every once in a while, the NCAA has to flex their muscle and punish somebody to to make everybody think that they care. So whether that's a heavy band on a on a ban on a particular college campus that didn't have it, nobody had it before whether they come down on a coach and that they never came down on any other coaches or they come down on a student athlete. They haven't come down on any other student athletes. I mean, they just do that to try and show people publicly that they're, they're really watching out for what's best for the, for the institution. But the bottom line is the, the business you can, you could whack one kid, and the business, the $4 billion college football business is going to keep going. So they don't really, it, it, you know, if they really cared, they would, they would affect the bottom line. And that's never going to happen. Absolutely. 
obviously I'm a little cynical when it comes to the NCAA. You don't say. <laughs> I'll tell you what, they're going to take a huge bath and it couldn't happen to a better group of people. <laughs> I would, I would venture to say that they are probably going to be one of the hardest hit industries and businesses that come out of this period. Um, yep. and it's already been interesting Stand to see out. what they're trying to do with, uh, spring athletes, you know, talking about giving them another year of eligibility and all these things, but how many of these kids can really afford to come back for a fifth year to play, you know, if they're not going to play professional sports, you know, obviously right. if we've got a kid that's got a real shot of playing in an MLB, maybe he takes this opportunity, come back, play another year of baseball to, you know, really increase his draft stock. But let's be honest, if you're a, you know, if you're a runner for the UF track team, are you really coming back for a fifth year? No, no, pro- probably not. And so all uh, that, yeah, all that loss to the NCAA is going to be huge. Yeah, just the the NCAA uh, hypocritical approach to their business model is going to totally bite them in the ass. And I just think it's, I think it's, it's going to be painful. And athletic departments are going to take a huge whack and coaches are going to have to take a huge whack. And to be honest, it's been out of whack for too many years. So for them to take a huge whack is in my opinion, um, they had it coming. They had it coming. They just, they got too greedy for too long. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of been a you know hot topic for several years. It's just always you know risen up and then been swept back under the rug. Um, we start talking about you know like I mean let's just call it what it is. You know football coaches' salaries. Well, you got yep. football coach coaches out here making more money than CEOs of you know some of the Fortune 500 companies. And yeah, now you have co- coordinators who are making two million dollars a year. You know it's just it's ridiculous. The whole the whole thing. It's totally ridiculous, and they're going to take a huge hit, and they need a huge hit to, to get back in line with what their mission is, which is student athlete. And that, I think, in the long run, will be a very good thing. In the short run, it's going to really suck for some people. And I don't think I, agree. I don't think I could agree with that more. Um, it's actually been like a crazy topic i have some friends of mine that work at the university of florida some in admissions and some in international studies and listening to this, them talk about some of the things that they are responsible for financially but then looking you know 100 yards to the right at ben hill griffin seeing just how much money is spent there it's it's astonishing that our we expect our, our our students to pay for so much but yet we just throw and i mean literally throw money at certain aspects of our campus and there are going to be uh fat that's going to have to get cut out of uh the administrations of these large college sports institutions there's going to have to be these assistant associate ad's that are going to have to lose their jobs and and they they weren't performing enough of a function to have and to be paid the amount of money that they're being paid. 
they weren't performing enough. You know, there, there's no reason for football to have as many assistant coaches, directors of operation, directors of player personnel. There's no reason for any of that to exist. And all that needs to get cut and it's going to get cut and people are going to lose. People in athletics are going to lose, lose their jobs. I mean, I'm certainly concerned about the situation at Santa Fe, uh, um, and how this is all going to trickle down to us. Um, for sure. I, I, I think, I think at least in our situation where we're almost totally dependent upon student fees, that we have a chance to maintain athletics on some, at some level. Um, but I think there's going to be at the major levels, there's going to have to be sports are going to have to get cut. I mean, there's just going to have to be, you know, people who are, who are making their, their living, you know, as the director of player personnel for freshman football, I need to go. That's 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 good for the business. I would agree with that. Uh, we we talked back, you know, in two thousand ten and eleven, how coming out of that two thousand eight recession, businesses were able to really fine tune what it was they did and how they did it best because they had to go down to such a you know bare bones staff, and when they were able oh, to come right. back out of that recession. They were operating, you know, at twice their their capita because they did were doing the same job with half the employees. And I think right. uh, I think it's kind of what you're talking about there is you know we're gonna you know we're gonna be forced to do that again. And that's that's you know that's not all bad. It's not not good for the individual for sure. You know, but yeah. Whatever career or job you're in, if you're not looking down, if you're not looking down the road as to what could happen, then you're just sort of fooling yourself. Oh, absolutely. Anyone that's not thinking, you know, I understand the whole concept of, you know, thinking the now, but if you're not thinking one year from now, you're still going to be where you are right now in a year. Um, Because social, social norms are about to change drastically. Oh, my. Oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> I mean, things that things that we've grown up, you know, expecting and doing. I mean, I, one that really hit me last night as I drove by the movie theater behind uh, Ballyhoo on Newberry Road, yeah. and I started thinking about it. how willing are people going to be to go sit in a movie theater where, you know, several hundred other people have been that same day. You know, good uh, question. I'm not saying it's going to you know disappear overnight, but are people really going to flock back to you know bowling alleys, movie theaters, skating rinks? Uh, you know, well then that's where the the smart business people will figure it out. Which is, listen, if we want people to come, we're going to have to prove to them that it's safe, and so they'll have, they'll have to take extreme measures. You know, everything between. So now you need an extra 30 minutes between movies so you can wipe everything down. Yep. So instead of, so you're going to run one, two less movies a day, you know, because we're going to have to, in order to be up and running. I mean, if you're smart, if you're smart enough, you know, 
it can all get figured out, but you're going to have to. My my analogy is what happened after 9-11 and how it completely changed airplane travel. And airports were not set up for the screening that uh, they needed to do uh, after 9-11. But, well, now they are. But, boy, afterwards, it was, just, it was a pain in the ass to fly after 9-11. Oh, those, and, for, those first couple and, of years were a nightmare. Yeah. So it'll be the same, be the same thing. Well, and uh, so just the, the crazy, the little, and this, to me, it's the little things that are going to change. They're going to be crazy is, uh, I think a social norm that's about to happen is just the cleanliness of businesses. So what I noticed yesterday is I happened to stop by CVS, picking up what I needed, needed to go to the bathroom, ran back there to go to the bathroom. And I don't think I've ever walked into a bathroom in public and been like, wow, this bathroom yeah. is spotless. Nice in here. <laughs> and I think, you know, but that's something, that, you know, just over the years we've, we've become okay with, you know, oh, well, you know, the bathroom's not that clean as yeah. it is. Right. Moving right. forward from now, though, because it's become so normal already, businesses are, you know, so clean now. They're not, well, I think, we're not going to let I, it go I back. Think- well, advertising companies are going to have to come up with ways to, to tell people, hey, it's safe to come here. You know, it, it, we, this is, these are the steps that we're taking, and this, these are the things that we're doing, and visit us because it's safe here. I mean, even if you're a car dealer or whatever, you, you need to start advertising cleanliness and disinfecting and you know, and the things that we're doing to make sure that you're going to be safe. Because otherwise, you're right. Nobody's going to go. Nobody's going to go to a Florida football game unless Florida football comes up with some sort of protocol for getting into the stadium. I mean, it's going to be just like 9-11, you know. Now there has to be a new protocol for flying. There's a new protocol for going to mass events. And that's maybe that's wearing masks and gloves, and then you can go. <laughs> if you don't you don't have those on you don't have those on you don't put those on you don't get to go so how long does it take and, for the university of florida athletic department to come out with their own branded masks and yeah, gloves sure 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 a uf mask <laughs> <laughs> i mean I, it's probably already being worked on a, let's be honest i'm sure it's got a big gator head in the front it's just got like the the gator mouth teeth on the top and bottom um yeah. So, hey, real quick, I wanted to dive in. Um, so typically what we do on our podcast is we open up with like five minutes of these uh, versus questions. Um, okay. Obviously, we dove right into you know a lot of the things I wanted to talk to you about, but there's still a couple of these questions I wanted to uh, ask you just because I'm really interested to see your answer on some of these. Um, and uh, all it'll be is just I'll ask you, you know, two things. You pick which one is more important to you and then just a little, you know, a little answer of why. Um, and a lot of these are going to be much more, you know, geared towards you being a coach. So like the first one I really wanted to, uh, hit off is going to be culture versus mindset. So what I mean by that is, you know, are we, are we really focusing more on the culture of our program and, you know, the expectations on the culture side, or are we really more focused on the mindset of the individual players? Are you asking me which is more important? Yes, sir. Which one's more important to you? Uh, well, uh, I probably culture, and here's why: because if you have an established culture, 
in which everybody who's touching your program is on board with, then that can change players' mindsets. And if you don't have the culture in place to affect growth, then the mindset, the player's mindset will not adapt to that. So I certainly you would love to have and be able to affect players' mindset individually, but it's really the program's whole that's going to change a player's mindset and how they're going to grow. I love it. Love it. Um, the next one would be nutrition versus diet. And so really what I'm meaning by this is, you know, leaking a little bit back to that culture versus mindset, you know, are we, are we prescribing diets for the players or are we really going to great lengths to change their idea about how they eat? Are we really focusing on making sure that they're not just eating properly right now because we're leading up to season? They are literally changing the way that they consume food to make it a nutritional you know, decision on a daily basis. Well, what you're, again, what you're trying to do is, within the culture of your program is to teach players with more information, that the more information that they have at their disposal, the better choices that they're going to make. And there really isn't any way to enforce diet, meaning that there there isn't any way for me to go to a player and say, Hey, this is the number of carbs you need. This is the number of proteins that you need to have. This is the, um, you know, this is, this is how much water you need to drink without giving them the information of why. And so the culture of your program has to be based on why you're doing what you're doing. And then you keep your fingers crossed that they start making decisions that are not just best for them as athletes, but what's best for them as, as uh, people. All right. Um, the next one's going to be branding versus recruiting. So this would be branding your program in such a way that you get more and more athletes that reach out to you about playing for you versus just strictly focusing on reaching out to players that you want to play for you? Okay. So my world, my recruiting world is a little different than um, maybe a lot of college programs. There are probably a lot of college four-year college programs out there that would tell you that recruiting would come first and then have uh, the branding sell the recruit on coming there. So they would, they would be very active in contact evaluation, uh, coaches, contacts, club contacts, high school, you know, finding out all they can. And then when it comes to making the final choice, the brand will sell the recruit. So in my world, um, the, the two-year college option for most kids is not in the forefront of their mind. 
meaning they're not thinking I'm going to go to a junior college and then I'm going to transfer because nobody wants to do the process twice. They only want to do it once. So in my world, branding is way more important because when they do decide, hey, I might need to go the two-year route or, or I, I can now see the benefits of going the two-year route, now they're going to look around for a good junior college to go to. And if your brand isn't in place, meaning if your reputation isn't what it needs to be or, um, you know, your, uh, whatever your mission is, or if you're not winning more than you're losing, you know, then, uh, or if academically your school is not very strong or you're not selling your school academically, then kids are going to look for other junior colleges to go to. So I think it's, I think for me, especially at Santa Fe, uh, we've worked really hard as a program to reach out to the local community and to the state of Florida to say, hey, we got a good thing going here, just nobody knows about it. And so we work really hard on our branding to make sure that club directors, high school coaches, um, the local area understands that, that this, is, this is really kind of a cool place to be. So when kids come to that decision of going to a two-year school, they'll come to Santa Fe. I would not only agree with you for your situation, but I think that bigger programs do exactly what you say. And I think that they put recruiting over branding, and I think that's a mistake. I understand the concept of why they do it that way, but I still see kids that end up going with other options over other schools simply because the brand was so strong from the get-go. I mean, there's kids that have, you know, gone to the University of Miami versus UF simply because of the brand that's been ingrained in them for years before they were ever even given their first offer. And so it just, you know, it made that school so you know, a, appealing in their brain because that brand was so strong. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I don't know how hard schools work at their branding. Um, and, and it varies by program. So the, so the, the baseball program at university of Miami has a much stronger brand than the volleyball program. So I, so I don't know how hard schools are working at their brand compared to each other. Um, I think they are just simply working on, we got to go get a whole bunch of kids in our, on our list. And then whatever our brand is, we hope that appeals to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the next one is going to be kind of a fun one for me. Um, I always love hearing, especially coaches opinions on this one. It's going to be tradition versus technology. So are we relying more on, you know, this is a drill that I've done for 10 years and these are the results I like to see out of it? Or are we moving to the technology where we want to have things like the NOAA system and we're, you know, really much more relying on technology to help us grow our athlete's success? Um, well, I think that 
the, the huge advances that have been made in technology are uh, in video. And the, the things that can be broken down in video now, and very quickly, extremely quickly, and the, to be able, the, the ability to access that video and, and to get that video to players, you know, to their phones and to an app, and um, the, that technology has, has really, I think, changed how people um, are training and how people are teaching. That's the plus side of technology. The downside of technology is just because a kid watches herself on video doesn't mean that she's going to change her motor skill behavior. It just means that she sees what she's doing wrong. And the only way to change motor skill behavior is, is just rote learning and a kid's ability to buy into uh, a lot of reps. So I think what's happening or what I see happening is technology, that, this technology of video is everybody's shortcut to changing motor skill behavior. And <laughs> physiologically, that, that's not, that's not uh, how it's going to change. Just because you see it doesn't mean it's now going to change. The only way it's going to change is through um, a lot of repetition and a lot of failure to change it. But we're all looking for shortcuts because we understand that today's kid is really not all that interested in investing in the process. And that's not the kid's fault. That's a cultural issue that we are not addressing as trainers. There, there's so much to unpack in that answer. I love it, and it's rolling perfectly into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is proactive versus reactive. So I feel like there's two very, very, you know, opposite ways of coaching, which is proactive versus reactive. Proactive meaning we're going to bring the athlete in. And we're not going to let them do anything until we've explained exactly how we want something done versus reactive. We're going to bring this athlete in, let them do it, let them fail at, you know, we're going to put them in a situation where they're probably going to fail because they're not going to do it the right way. And then we're going to, you know, work them back to, Hey, so this is how you did it. And this is how it failed. So this is why you need to do it the other way. Um, so which one would you really, you know, hone in more on, you know, that proactive versus reactive. Um, I, in my head, it's definitely proactive and the, of course, there's always going to be skill. You're still going to have to have skill evaluation before you, before you dive into, you know, how you're going to change them. So you still have to be able to get in, you still have to be able to watch an athlete's, uh, athletic movement skills and what they're able to do and, you know, how fast can they be and, uh, you know, what's their hand eye like? I mean, I think there's a lot of evaluation that's going to, uh, to, to make you evaluate, all right, how, how do I take this kid to another level? But at the end of the day, you're trying to teach kids how to be, uh, more efficient on the court. You're trying to teach them how to be, uh, more effective, how to produce at a higher level or at a greater level than, than the way they're producing now, whether that's 
assists or kills or digs or three option passes or service aces, you know, how you're, and then you're, and then you're trying to break that down to teach them. All right. If you want more aces, you know, this is the jump floater that you're going to have to learn. And this is how we're going to break this down. And I'm going to show you how great jump floaters do it. And then we're going to, we're going to break that down until, um, you're, you're more comfortable with it. So, so, so kind of, kind of, kind of being like, you know, proactive in the specific skill, but being reactive over the life of the athlete, you know, just kind of keeping a constant tab on where they're at and then being proactive as soon as a new skill is needing to be inter- introduced. Yeah. And again, I'll go back to that's all assuming the kid wants to change. Oh, and absolutely. And the kid is willing to, and the kid is willing to do what you're asking them to do. And that then goes down to, goes back to trust. You know, does the, does the kid really trust you just to listen to you so that, you know, to say, okay, does this coach really know what they're doing? And when they say something, are they saying it because that fits their ego? Or are they saying that because they really want to make me better? And then you can be as proactive, reactive, whatever you want to be as you want if you've got that trust built in and you've proven to that player that you know how to help them and you know, and you know how it's going to work. I love so, it. Uh, but I, I, again, I'll go back to kids today in today's iPhone world are just on the whole, not very interested in how long is this going to take. They're just not. They're just not really interested in in um, managing uh, their failure. They're not interested in um, uh, how hard the process is going to be. They're not interested. In, and I, I don't want to overly generalize for sure because there's plenty of kids out there who put the work in. But you walk into a group of 12 kids, and I'm telling you right now, you're going to have two that are going to be invested in the process. You're going to have two that are there because their friends are there. And then you're going to have the other eight who are going to have varying levels of interest. And, and, I, and, and I'm not just calling that out as club kids, but that's true in the college level. That's true everywhere. They're going to have varying, varying levels of interest. And for the most part of those eight, you're not going to have very, very, very low percentage of them are going to swing over to the, okay, I'm, I'm really going to buy in and change and be better. Just, just don't see it anymore. Oh, just, just in the, I don't know, or I wouldn't think I'm going on my eighth year now. Just in my eight years of coaching you at a lower level, much lower than, you know, what you're talking about, I've seen the same thing. And it's it's uh it's frustrating as a coach, um, for a long time until you finally learn to, you know, accept it. And even once you accept it, it's even more frustrating that you've accepted it. <laughs> you really hate seeing these kids that have the skills, you know, they have the ability to become a great athlete. They just don't have the mindset for it. Yeah, and again, it goes back to investing in the process. And it's 
it's easily the it's easily the number one biggest problem that coaches have in getting kids to get better, and that is to invest in the long term process of, of getting better. And like you know, there's there's a few out there that get it, and they get it because they've been in environments already that have forced them into process. Um, but for the most part, um, especially in our sport where it's basically a sport of halves, you know, just, there's just nobody really making these kids say, Hey, so yeah, this is hard. Yeah. Yeah. That didn't go well. Yeah, absolutely. That was not good, but what are you learning from it? And are you learning enough from it so that you can say, I want to be better. And that's just that those conversations are just not happening. They're not happening with coaches to players and they're not happening with parents to players and they're not happening. It's not happening within their peers. Nobody's saying no, they're, they're not even their peers who need, <laughs> need their teammates. They need their teammates to say, Hey, uh, I need you to be better so that we can win. So, you know, yeah, yeah, it's hard today. Yeah, I get it. It's hard. I've had hard days today. But God, we got we got to figure out a way to get better. Well, what's crazy really is like is every that. aspect of our society. You know, we've gotten you know meaner, right? You know, with the online, you know, kids can you know be more mean to each other. But when it comes to sports specifically, everybody's got to be a winner. Everybody's got to be nice to each other, and so we focus so much on just the you know, the niceties that you're totally right. I mean, kids no longer push each other because that's not socially acceptable. You know, I've heard, I've yeah, had several athletes come to me on different teams at different you know levels and, you know, she's being mean to me. Well, how is she being mean? Well, she, you know, kind of got on to me because I was out of rotation. Well, that, I mean, that's, I would do the same thing. <laughs> Why is that wrong? You should be in the right rotation. You know, my assistant coach, my assistant coach, Aaron Maynard, uh, brings this up to our team all the time. She said, look, if you have a teammate who's talking to you, who's kind of criticizing you or is on you for a particular, a particular moment, it only means that in that moment, she wants to win more than you do. And I love that. I'm totally stealing that from Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't know where she stole it from. Uh, I think her dad, I think it's from her dad or something, but when she brought that up, she, she, she's completely right. So when there's, when there's teammates that are barking at you, they're, you know, they're just trying to win. They just want to win right now more than you do. And you need to raise your level of uh, competitiveness to, to what she's trying to do right now. Now, now, if you got a kid that's not playing very well, and she's barking at you, okay, the, the, that's that's a different that's a different uh, conversation. But if you got a kid who's playing well and is working hard and is doing all the right things, and you're and you're in your own little, you know, self-absorbed shell, that just means that kid right now wants to win more than you. 
man, I, I'm so in love with that thought process from Aaron. I'm totally stealing that. Um, there, there's one last versus question I wanted to hit, um, before I just kind of, uh, let you talk for a minute about who you are and you know, how you've gotten to where you are and that's drills versus scrimmages. And this is one that I've, you know, I almost feel like it's a dead horse in the coach community now, but it's still so interesting to see how certain coaches answer this, you know, what, what's more important to you? Is it more important to run, you know, two and a half hours of nothing but drills or is the scrimmage aspect, you know, the game aspect more important? That is all dependent upon where you are in your season and, and uh, the process that you're, or how you're trying to develop your team to, to winning at your level. So you, I can remember uh, being in a, <laughs> I can remember being coaching a camp and I was a, I had a team and team camp and they were just, they were just not very good. They, 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 they didn't know, they didn't know hardly anything about rotations and they didn't know um, anything about pass that hit. I mean, they were just really not, they were just new to the game. And so I remember counting the process of um, pass, set, uh, get it over the net, go to base. And we had to do 10 of those. So that's might be where you are in your season. You, you might be right there. Um, do you sit there and teach them individual skills to try and get them better individually? The, the, the short answer is probably no. Uh, and you're, you're much more, you, you should probably be focusing much more on the process of the group. And so that might mean some form of scrimmage. But if you have a team that's more knowledgeable and knows more about what they're doing, then probably skill development takes over. Okay. That's the, and that's why I love asking that question. That's the first time I've heard an answer, you know, broken down more like that. Um, so now I just kind of wanted to do what's, you know, commonly referred to as like the qualifying. So, you know, again, just say your name, where you're currently at professionally, and then just kind of give us a quick, you know, backstory on how you got there. <laughs> okay. Um, Nick Sharonis, head volleyball coach at Santa Fe College. Approaching our seventh season, we started the program in 2014. Santa Fe at that point did not have women's volleyball, so started it from the ground, from the ground up. Uh, prior to that, I spent uh, three years at St. Francis Catholic High School. And prior to that, I spent 18 seasons at the University of Florida as the associate head volleyball coach. So quite, um, quite a strange journey to where I am today. Um, prior to University of Florida, I was at four other different colleges throughout the Midwest in a variety of roles, all the way from graduate assistant to part-time assistant to, um, to um, um, full-time assistant in different, different spots along the way. So it's been uh, quite a long journey to get to Santa Fe College, but it's been a great one. Well, and also, so you're the 
you're the head volleyball coach at Santa Fe High School, uh, College, excuse me, and you're also the uh, you mind throwing in a little bit too about what you do uh, with the club volleyball currently. Oh yeah, yes. Also, uh, I am uh, with Vision Volleyball Club, and I am the head coach of the eighteen college prep team, and I'm also the head coach of the fifteen team. And I've been working with Vision Volleyball Club for uh, about the last uh, eight or nine years. Okay. Okay. I just, I, I definitely feel like, you know, a lot of, you know, some of your answers have been driven very heavily by, you know, your, your life experiences, especially, you know, a big one, I would say would be that branding versus recruiting. You kind of got to experience that at University of Florida and you're, I think you said 18 seasons there. Right. And then, right. you know, building a program from the ground up at Santa Fe, you really got to see, you know, not just coming on board and kind of changing things, but you had to literally create, you know, building block by building block, how that Santa Fe program was going to operate to get it where it is now. Yeah. And that uh, has really been so much fun for me uh, because of my variety of experiences uh, of coaching uh, in other established programs. It's allowed me to take what I've learned in all those different stops along the way and apply it to uh to, to Santa Fe and how how I want the program to operate. Um but the big the, the most fun I've had is uh being able to take something that's nothing and turn it into my own vision of the way it's the way I want it to work. And so that has really been uh extremely rewarding and uh, I couldn't really have asked for a better experience. I mean, I always treasure my 18 years at Florida for a variety of reasons because, you know, we won a whole heck of a lot. Um, but mostly this experience has, has really shaped me into uh, becoming a much better coach. And I, I've got to be honest with you too. I've got to say of all your life experiences, I'm really loving that three years at uh, St. Francis. I feel like that was, that was really important. I might be a little you know, biased really, in my opinion. No, 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 no. It, it really, it really was important because I know this sounds strange to say, but I was the assistant at Florida, and at at St. Francis, I had to be the head coach. Yeah, and that's a, that's <laughs> a huge flip. Oh, it's an unbelievable flip. And you would think, oh gosh, what's the big flip? Well, the big flip is. You're making all the decisions now, and it's amazing how many decisions you're having to make on a daily basis as the head coach, as opposed to not, you know, not having to make hardly any decisions as an assistant coach. I've always thought that assistant coaches were would be great uh, TV color commentators, you know, because they're they're the masters of the of the no crap statement. Yeah, yeah, like no crap. So I would say to Mary, I'd be, I'd be sitting on the bench, you know, and we'd shank to a couple passes in a row and I'd say, gee, Mary, uh, we're not passing very well. And she would say, yeah, no, no crap. Yeah. And, and so it, I learned pretty quickly that instead of saying we're not passing very well, I learned very quickly to say, Hey, Mary, maybe we should change the pattern. <laughs> let's move a kid around. Hey, let's put a sub in. You know, as opposed to saying, uh, but but assistant coaches were, were were famous for for stating the obvious. 
Absolutely. Um, so I, we'll, uh, we'll start wrapping up now. Um, but what I'd like to do is get you to leave us with one thing in your life that is the most important. If you had to pick one thing that you feel has been, you know, whether it's been a driving force or something that you're still working for, you know, what is, what, what keeps you ticking? What, what gets you out of bed every morning? That is the most important thing to you and your success. I don't think there's any question that the most important thing I do is positively affect people's lives for on a long-term basis that somewhere along the line, I'll get an email or a phone call out of the blue from a kid that I coached 10, 20 years ago that wants to tell me about um, her about to get married or wants to tell me that, that they're expecting and that they're, you know, they're, they're very excited about it or wants to tell me, Hey, I'm coaching now. And I didn't realize all the work that you put into uh, scouting for video. And I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate it. And, you know, what gets me up in the morning is, knowing that each day I have an opportunity to completely affect and perhaps change, hopefully in a positive way, um, kids' lives for, for the rest of their lives. And I think we can all relate to uh, a teacher we had in high school that made that kind of effect on us. And that's kind of what uh, I hope to do on a daily basis. And, uh, that is a, that's a great, that's a great goal and, you know, driving force, uh, for you. And I think it's very evident in how you, you know, how you coach, you know, I've got to, I've got to witness you coach at, you know, several different levels. You know, I've got to watch you from your, your 15s team and, you know, interacting with those girls, um, all the way up to seeing you coach, you know, at Santa Fe college and, you know, seeing how you, you know, interact with those players, how you interact with them at game time versus how you interact with them, you know, on you know, just kind of a daily grind basis. And, uh, it, it's very evident that, that is a, uh, you know, something always at the forefront of your mind, you know, how, what you're doing and saying in every moment is, you know, going to affect them long-term, not just, you know, right now. Yeah. I've always said that, uh, uh, you know, they're going to have to cut the whistle off me. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm always going to be coaching, teaching something for as long as I, I possibly can until somebody comes up and, you know, pats me on the top of the head and says, Hey, coach, uh, I, got, I got this. Okay. <laughs> you go have a seat over there. <laughs> and then I'll go, Okay, got it. Got it. I'll sit down. I got it. Okay. Um, and, the, and the, that, you know, that day will come. Someday that'll come. But until that happens, um, I'm going to keep plugging away. Listen, as long as you know what rotation they're supposed to be in and which set it is, you keep coaching. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us, and I uh, hope you have a great day, brother. Thanks, Taylor. Bye. Yes, sir.